Welcome to the Word of Grace podcast. As a community, we exist to love on God with all that we are and to share His grace with everyone. If you want to connect with us more, head to social media or wordofgracechurch.com. Here's today's episode. Speaking of crazy cultural moments, we're starting a new series today. Uh, and it's been on my heart for a really long time since um, before the pandemic. You know, the Lord's been laying this on me and been asking him for timing. But we're going to be walking through 1 Corinthians together. And who knows, we might even roll into 2 Corinthians by the time this is done. You know, we might get crazy, right? Just keep going. Like, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive study. Uh, we could preach on this book for a really, really, really long time. I'm not sure we're going to go there, but we're not going to be in a hurry with the Word of God, Okay. If you've been looking out at the the rapid rate of change in our world, if your head's been spinning looking at our culture, first off, I want to say we're with you. (laughs) Um, We live in a crazy time. That's all of us to some level. But secondly, in cultures like ours, in chaos moments like ours, that's where letters like this speak so clearly that we're going to consider together. Paul calls us to stay true to Jesus, to the word and to the way. Not to get swept away with all the cultural shifts that are really loud and in your face every moment. Not to get swept away with the ideologies of our time. Even if they invade the church, he calls us to be true to the one who called us. Amen? Amen. Now, for anybody who doesn't believe that the word of God is still speaking today with its enduring wisdom, I would challenge them to read this letter. You know, you want to ask if the word is relevant or speaks to our moment. If you haven't read 1 Corinthians, don't even come to me with that statement, Right? We're going to look at the the relevance of this letter today. We're going to set things up in just a moment. But I want to suggest, maybe the real question isn't whether the word is speaking, but whether or not we're listening. Whether we actually desire for God himself to speak to us, to bring wisdom for our moment, for sensitive things in our moment. G.K. Chesterton famously said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. It hasn't been that Jesus' ways don't live up to the task at hand for us today in our crazy world. It's just that we know walking that path with Jesus isn't the easiest choice. It's not the popular way. And so many people are just like, you know what? I think I'm just going to sit this one out. It's far easier to fall back on comfortable, to go with the flow of our world, to listen to the loud voices around us. But if we will commit our hearts to what Jesus wants to shape, not just in me, but in us, in our families, in this family, individually, collectively, it's going to be so worth it, people. It's going to be so worth it. Remember, Jesus calls us to the narrow path, that unpopular path. It's not the easiest way but it is the way that leads to life. Following Jesus means allowing him to continually transform us, continually be working on me every day. He's going to make us new creations. That's an ongoing process, but it requires us to remain committed, to remain with him, with open ears and open hearts. I promise you, as we study this letter, 1 Corinthians, it's going to speak to real-life situations. It might get under your skin, It might poke at some things in your life. But we need that. We need that. And just as Paul brought uncommon clarity in the midst of cultural wars going on in Corinth, then 
the Holy Spirit, I believe, is going to continue to speak to us in our moment now. So are we listening? Are we ready to allow the word to speak to our moment, to our mess, to our sin, to the things we got going on in our lives? Are we ready to give the word of the creator of the universe authority in our lives again? Because if not, we might as well pack it up, right? I, I just believe, as today we set the stage and we look at this on a broad level, I believe God is going to speak to us through this. I'm excited. I'm also a little scared because it gets into some really deep stuff. But I'm not scared in that sense where we're afraid to say what needs to be said because like Paul, and I'm prayerful that God's going to help us to do that with incredible compassion and clarity. Amen? Amen? So let's start at the beginning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read the introduction here today, and that's about as far as we're going to get. We're going to go through verse 1 through 8 together. It says this, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word today, and every day, with open hearts and open ears. We invite you to speak. We posture ourselves to listen. And we invite you to change our hearts, our lives, our outlook. Lord, make us more like you. Conform us to the image of your son once more. And get us ready for the world that we engage. Help us to do so with such compassion, with grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of this letter, we need to sort of orient ourselves a little bit as to where we're talking about, who we're talking about, what's being said in this letter. I want to take a look today primarily at the context of this city and the story that leads us to this letter. You know, we need that so that we can kind of understand where we're coming from here and see how it speaks to us as well. And, and I believe that Paul, what we'll see today is that he's really calling us to humbly come back to Jesus as our center again, okay? So first thing, if this is Corinth 101 today, let's talk geography first, any map people out there? Any people just kind of like love to look at the globe? Maybe you're a kid and you spun the globe and put your finger on it, that kind of thing. All right, let's put up a, we have a picture here today. We're going to talk, first of all, geography. Where is it? Let's just leave that on screen for a minute. Corinth was an ancient Greek city. It was in Greece in a unique location that made it particularly important in Roman times. By Paul's day, it was a leading city in the Roman Empire. The Romans had come through Greece. They completely destroyed old Corinth. 
But then Julius Caesar rebuilt it about 100 years later in 44 AD. And part of the reason it was rebuilt, you can see on this map here, is because it had unique geography. It was uniquely positioned where exactly it sat in Greece. It was a double port city sitting right between those two bays. It became an incredible, uh, important trade route for people because sailing around the Peloponnese Peninsula there was incredibly dangerous. So going through Corinth became the main trade route. It was a gateway. And as such, it became exceedingly wealthy. Very, very wealthy. Okay, that's important to know. The city rose to a kind of like new money, economic powerhouse status. And how many of you guys know what tends to happen when new money and economic powerhouse status happens? What tends to be the case is that there becomes a massive cultural melting pot and pretty much anything goes in cities like that, right? The culture and the character of Corinth was distinctly Roman, cosmopolitan, and totally pagan, like totally godless in many ways. Famous mountain that overlooks the city is called the Acro-Corinth, and it was capped in ancient times and rebuilt by Julius Caesar with the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of erotic love. In many ways, that tells you a little bit about the city's heritage, what they value. Russell Spittler captured the feel of the city when he remarked that the major interests of Corinth were making money and making love. That's where we're talking about, okay? That's what we're going into today. Are we okay to talk about these things in church? Can I say making love in church? Is that okay? All right. This is a letter written to a church in a culture that is famous for certain things. Number one, a melting pot of backgrounds. People from all over the known world. A rapid rise to economic power and trade significance. Excellence in athletics and an obsession with the physical body. You know, the Isthmian Games in Corinth were second only to the Olympic Games of the day in their importance for athletics. And the last thing they're totally famous for was a lack of sexual restraint or boundaries of any kind. Anybody else think this sounds a little familiar? A culture that sprung up from a melting pot of people from all over the world rose to economic and trade and military significance Excellence, obsession with the body, sexuality, rampant. This is, could be just written to America, let's be honest. Right? Yeah. Gordon Fee says that in Corinth and Paul's day, it was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. And that kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Um, I instantly thought back to a very common experience that I had when I was living in the United Kingdom. You know, working amongst English people, many of them were just like kind of like borderline obsessed with American culture. Uh, it was very interesting. They would save their money like crazy to go and visit America, and then they would obviously want to talk to me about, I'm going to visit your homeland, man. I'd be like, that's cool. Kind of like, where are you going? T- no word of a lie, 90% of the time, maybe more, that people were going to visit America and telling me about it, they were going to one of three places. Anybody want to take a guess today? You're getting close. New York. They love New York. Las Vegas, I had a friend who got married in Vegas, went back every year. I was like, dude, you can do so much better, right? Or Disney. They love Disney, too. And hey, if you're talking about Disneyland, then I guess they were visiting the Corinth of the world, the New York, Las Vegas, Los Angeles of the world, right? I had this thing that I, when I would talk to them, they'd tell me they're going, like, this thing would rise up in me. 
like involuntarily, like to be like, then you're not really visiting where I'm from. Like that's not, that's not me. Don't, those tourist traps are not, they don't represent me or my people, right? <laughs> I felt like a duty to clarify with them because you know, some of these traveling friends of mine were, were quite innocent and I cared about them and I didn't want them to like idolize that version of American culture that they were about to see on display in those places. Have you ever had that feeling with somebody, like somebody you care about, um, they start to talk to you about something that they're passionate about, excited about, uh, you know, they get infatuated with a certain place, a certain ideology, a certain way of viewing the world maybe, and you get that sinking feeling in your stomach, and you're just like, don't go that way, you could do better. Scripture confirms for us, you know, something that we know to be true on a gut level, The dominant cultures of the day, like the culture we live in, they have a strong indoctrinating power on those who visit or those who live there, right? They have a strong way of influencing us. They're hard to resist. They're very persuasive because they they seem to offer us everything. All the worldly ideals, the money, all that stuff that we so easily run after. And to borrow from last week, we were talking about the parable that Jesus told about the soils. The seed gets planted, but there's thorns all over. There's so many things that want to distract us. Competing worldviews that will crowd the truth of Jesus and, and cultures like ours. And they have a strong indoctrinating power. The soil of Corinth was a very crowded place in many ways. But in God's grace... The Apostle Paul waded into that dominant and chaotic cultural moment in Corinth, and he planted seeds anyway. He planted seeds for the kingdom. He trusted that God would bring fruit, even in a city that is crazy as Corinth. When Paul came to the city of Corinth, you know, he couldn't protect them from their own culture. You know, like, like I wanted to protect my friends from visiting America. You know, in that way. He couldn't protect them from the culture that they already belonged to that culture. But he called them to a radical change in their lives. He preached the gospel to them. He called them to lay every other pursuit and passion aside to follow Jesus as Lord and Jesus only. He came to Corinth on his second missionary journey right after his famous stop in Athens and he launched a church there. He built lifelong friendships there. God did amazing things. He stayed for a year and a half before he continued on his mission to plant churches all over the known world. Sometime later, as Paul was out planting churches, a report reached him. Things are not going well in Corinth. The church is experiencing all these issues, all these divisions. They've slipped back into some ways of living that come from that dominant culture and not from Christ. Imagine the heartbreak that Paul must have felt hearing that report. There's a word for this nowadays that we use, you might hear used in church sometimes, called syncretism, syncretism. Syncretism is this idea. We often hear it in, in kind of missionary circles because you might go and bring the gospel to a new place, but they still maintain idol worship or other pre-Christ religious things. Syncretism means you can follow Jesus and also kind of pick and choose from all the dominant ideologies of your day or other religions. You know, maybe it's Jesus with a little bit of Buddha sprinkled in or Jesus with a little bit of secularism sprinkled in. 
bit of Eastern mysticism here or there, where it sounds nice to us. Syncretism. Syncretism was a problem in the early church. It's a massive problem in our church today. Syncretism. You know, as Gordon Fee says, he says it like this. He says, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them. Emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. And that is what 1 Corinthians attempts to do. Paul's writing and he's trying to say, look, all this stuff that has still got its hooks in you. You got to get rid of that. Maybe, just maybe. This is an important letter for us to consider. What do you think? The letter to Corinth could easily be a letter to the American church. And we'd be wise to listen and open our ears to the stern but caring call to once again put Christ first in our lives. Christ first, Christ only. So what does Paul do? He hears this report and he writes them a letter. There's something weighty about letters, right? Even in our day, like we have instant communication with everybody, but when you get a letter, I don't know why, anybody else feel like it just carries a little bit more weight. Somebody took the time to either type it or write it, whatever, it just carries more weight. Sometimes when we get a letter, we don't even have to open the letter to feel how important it is. Have you had this experience before? Right? And that can be like a good thing or a bad thing. Like you could get an invitation to a wedding in the mail and you, you get the envelope and you're like, oh, this is special, right? This is exciting. It's probably beautiful on the outside, whatever. It's a good thing. And you know even before you open it that it's a good thing. But if that envelope says IRS in the top corner and you can't see a little check coming through that little window box, how many of you guys are trying to open that like, yes? Mm, I didn't think so, right? Letters, they carry weight. (laughs) It's a big thing. And, And can you imagine what the church in Corinth, knowing where they've been traveling, could have imagined, oh, we've got a letter from Paul. I mean, I bet immediately they were like, oh, okay, here we go. Let's sit down for this one, right? Let's sit down for this one. This letter, it carries a lot of weight as well. And I want to invite us to see it as individuals and see it as a church community, as a letter to us with the highest authority stamped on the outside. Let it carry that weight. Don't just dismiss it. Don't put it in the recycling bin like it's another credit card offer. Like, treat it with the respect it deserves today. It's a weighty letter, and it really, really does touch on some very sensitive things. Not just sensitive then, sensitive now. That are no less important for us to have clarity on now than it was for the people in Paul's day. Craig Blomberg says, it may, have been, it may as well have been called Christian Hot Potato, the letter of 1 Corinthians, because it's basically like Christian Hot Potato. Like, who wants to touch that one, right? But it's important. Among other things, it addresses division in the church, claims of spiritual superiority amongst Christians, sexual integrity, lawsuits amongst believers, food disputes, spiritual gifts, etiquette, etiquette for worship gatherings, and the resurrection. I mean, it's just a small list, right? No big deal. We'll cover that in half an hour. Now, given the sensitive nature of the topics and the fact that we know Paul writes this letter to address some things going wrong, you, you might be tempted to think this is just a scathing letter, right? Like, he's just going to just tear into them. 
I don't know, like as I began to think about letters like that, I've had letters like that, I don't know why, but for some reason I had a flashback to the Little Rascals. Not like the black and white one, but the Little Rascals in the 1990s, and a certain letter that Alfalfa writes, his love letter that somebody translates into something else. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Let's put this up on the screen really quickly. You can buy this on a t-shirt, which that confirmed to me that I need to show it in church. Uh, So it says this, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are scum between my toes. Love alfalfa. How many of you guys remember that movie in this moment? Right, a couple of you guys, right? Like, we'd be tempted to think, like, scathing letter like that. (laughs) Something's lost in translation. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't hold back on the truth. He's going to say some things in a letter they aren't wanting to hear, but they need to hear. But this letter isn't like that letter, okay? There's a category in Paul's time in Roman days for a letter like that called a letter of accusation. This isn't just a letter of accusation. Ultimately, what this letter is, 1 Corinthians, although it hits on some very sensitive things, it is a pleading letter of someone who cares so deeply for these people. Cares for them like a father for his own children. In fact, as we looked at last week, that's how he refers to himself to them, as their spiritual father. And he really, 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 really wants to see them making the right choices. You know, in our day and age, we talk about cultural hot potato issues. Um, and looking at Paul's letter, I think that if, if people receive this in our day and age, they might have asked a certain question. They might ask, you know, like, well, Paul, why do you care so much? Why do you care so much? Why can't you just live and let live? Right? I mean, I, I, we see that as Christians touch on things. Why do you care so much? Why do you want to come and, like, burst my happy bubble? First of all, a father can't do that. A father can't just live and let live. He's too invested in his children. He can't just turn off his heart and check out and let them like go in ways that he knows are going to destroy them. Amen. Secondly, Paul saw all of these issues that he's going to address. They were just wreaking havoc in the church. They were producing all kinds of problems and issues with people he loved so much. And he knew that there's a different way. He can't hold himself back. And saying, come on, guys, let's not go that wide and destructive way that leads to destruction. Let's return once more to the narrow way that leads to life. So, yeah, Paul comes on strong at times in this letter, but he builds them back up. He reminds them who they are and whose they are with a father's heart. As we walk through it, I, I pray that God would give myself, CJ, and others the same ability for all of us to let the word speak clarity and truth into our lives, but to do so with the same tremendous compassion and care that Paul does. Because I know this series is going to push some buttons. This series is going to hit on some things. It's not going to be comfortable, but I love our church like crazy. <laughs> I love this church, and I believe that God is stirring up something new here. I believe that this is a moment we need to lean into. Thank you. Right from the intro, we see some of the seeds of where Paul's going. Seeds of what this letter will will bring about. You see, Paul doesn't waste time getting into the meat and potatoes of this letter. Like the very next verse, verse 10, he jumps into it. He's like, let's talk about the divisiveness in you. Like, immediate. So he comes at it. But this introduction that we just read, as nice and flowery as it sounds, it is actually quite loaded. 
with seeds of where he's going. I want to read again to you uh, verse 4 through 9. Sometimes it helps to repeat things as we're ruminating on them. He says this, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you. Now that you belong to Christ Jesus, through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul He is genuinely thankful for his friends in Corinth. He's genuinely thankful for what God has been doing amongst them, pouring out spiritual gifts that they need, these people he loves. But he keeps overwhelmingly in this passage, in this introduction, pointing out the fact that it is God at work amongst them that is making the difference. It's not from their human abilities. Why does he feel the need to do this? Corinth as a city, and this helps us to understand the entirety of the letter, and it's important. We have to recognize Corinth took such pride in its Romanitas. Romanitas, its Romanness. It was what Rome exported all around the empire. It was what people aspired to as far away as Alexandria and Egypt and beyond. The Romanitas were part of this. And Corinth was so proud as a city. It was trying to be just like Rome And Rome had an obsession with status and influence achieved by showing off how much you know, how great you are, how wise you are, how smart you are, your eloquent speech, your wisdom. Again, that doesn't speak to America at all, does it? Obsession with showing off for our status and our personal gain. So Paul, he made it a habit When he was with them initially, in the letters he wrote them, he made it a habit to never, ever, ever give an inch in this way. Never joining into the various ways they tried to build themselves up or obtain glory for themselves. And it seems that this actually made them quite angry with Paul. If you read the correspondence of Paul with Corinth, they weren't happy with him. They were trying to undermine him because he wasn't playing the same game as them and it pushed their buttons. Scott McKnight tells us they had the idea of becoming a glorious, honor-filled, status-driven Roman Christian. Paul wanted no part of that. He wanted them to subvert the quest for glory in Romanitas and instead give all the glory to Jesus. He wouldn't give them an inch on that. So from the very beginning, he is giving God all the glory. He's saying this is only by God's grace, only for his purposes, and he will not stop. He's giving God glory for even the best things happening amongst us that they might try to take pride in or compare each other with. And it seemed at some point they even wanted to make Paul like their pet philosopher. So like he could be our Aristotle. He could be our Cicero. And then we would be thought of so well. Like, we got Paul. Could you imagine, like, like, I'm not, like, if Paul wanted to be the pastor of this church, you guys would vote me out in a heartbeat. Like, honestly. And that's, for, that's fair. That is fair. But he'd be like, no, 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 no. You don't get to, like, you don't own me. You can't buy me. <laughs> you know? 
And it made them mad. You're going to see this in the next few weeks as we dive into like one of the first issues you know, from the beginning. They wanted him to be that way. They had a problem dividing in the church because they wanted to r- rally around this leader or that leader for their own fame, essentially. That doesn't sound like our world, does it? Becoming overly interested in successful people, people who got it all figured out, people who maybe come around with eloquent words and wisdom or philosophies that just appeal to us. That doesn't sound like our world at all. This isn't relevant. Paul spends more time on the problem of division in the church than anything else. Unity within the body of Christ is the consistent theme of the New Testament. But the driving force behind the divisiveness in Corinth at this moment Ultimately, a lot of the issues that Paul goes on to address are all rooted in the same thing. It's an underlying human pride. The quest for glory and honor and status to be recognized, to be exalted in our culture on our own, apart from God. Same human problem that shows up in Genesis 3, if we're honest. Right, Larry? We were talking about that this morning. See, Paul knows where this road leads. When we become obsessed with how much we know, showing off how much wisdom we have, our abilities to others with fancy Instagram posts or whatever, he knows where that road goes. In fact, Paul had seen this movie before, right before he came to Corinth, actually. He had a moment that I think spoke to him about this. Let's put that map up on the screen again. You might notice something about this map. There's another city on there, Athens, right? Before arriving in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, we have Acts chapter 17. That's crazy. Famous moment where Paul stands up on Mars Hill in Athens and speaks to the the members of the Areopagus. You know, here his audience in Athens is different. Here he's speaking to the famed philosophers of the day, the intellectual giants of his time. Corinth ain't quite on that level. Corinth is like, we're just happy to be here. (laughs) Athens is famous for its philosophy, for its thinkers, for its wisdom in its world. But perhaps some of the reason Paul warns them off this obsession with eloquence and wisdom and philosophy comes from what he saw when he spent time amongst the intellectual giants of his day. He speaks powerfully and persuasively to the people of Athens shows incredible God-given wisdom, miraculous wisdom, draws on their traditions and stories to reveal to them who God is, preaches the gospel to them, preaches and proclaims the resurrection of Christ. Many people cite his sermon on Mars Hill as a template for reaching our culture. Churches are named after this moment And it's certainly impressive. It's certainly worth, you know, mimicking. It speaks to us of how we need to communicate the gospel well to those God's brought into our lives. Don't get me wrong. He did an amazing thing in Athens. But here's the thing. In Athens, amongst the intellectual giants, the fruit was slow to emerge. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 17. After Paul just blindsides them with this incredible message This is what happens. It says this, Acts chapter 17, verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Others said, we want to hear more about this later. 
And then others, uh, that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others were with them. See, some laughed at Paul in their wise cultural understanding. Some were mildly curious, like, ah, maybe, maybe we'll talk some more. Some believed. Thank God. But Luke In contrast to some of the other things he records in the book of Acts, he records no baptisms. He records no new church planted at this time. And we need to remember, you know, from church history, we we look back and we know that eventually incredible fruit did come in Athens. Those believers like Dionysus, they went on to change the city over time. But as kind of a side note today, we need to remember when we sow seeds of the gospel in a culture like ours, where we consider ourselves so learned, so intellectual, so wise... Sometimes the fruit is slow to arrive, which tells us we we shouldn't judge things too quickly, first of all. We shouldn't judge things too quickly. But for whatever reason, Paul doesn't stay in Athens. He moves on. He doesn't stay very long. And by the time he shows up in Corinth, it seems like he's kind of changed his strategy a little bit. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he says, When I showed up amongst you, I resolved to know nothing amongst you while I was there except Christ and him crucified. It's a little different than the way that he dove into the history of Athens and their own kind of understanding of the world, their philosophy, and appealed to them on that basis. In Corinth, he's like, no, 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 I'm just preaching Jesus here. It's just Jesus here. You know, maybe it's because he's not talking to the Ivy League anymore. Or maybe it's because in Corinth, they wished they could be like the Ivy League. They were obsessed with human knowledge as a source of power and glory for themselves. But he laid aside his considerable knowledge and eloquence to make sure there is no confusion about who gets the glory from the gospel when he showed up in Corinth. From the beginning, Luke tells us the result is a little different as well. The fruit is a little different. Paul preaches First to the Jews and then moves to the Gentiles and many believe. Many are baptized. A church is planted in the power of the Holy Spirit. And great things happen in Corinth that Paul is not going to let go of. See, this quest for greatness and the personality cult alongside it, as Scott McKnight calls it, Paul saw this not only as a hindrance to the fruit that the gospel can bring initially, but he saw it as a plague on the fruit already growing in a healthy church as well. He saw that this Romanitas ideology still had its hooks in the people of Corinth, and he sets himself up against it in the introduction of his letter here. He's not going to play that game. He reminds them in no uncertain terms, it is not by eloquent words or all the knowledge Wikipedia can give us It is only by God at work in our midst, by his grace, that we are saved, that we are sanctified, equipped, and growing in him and bearing any fruits. It is only God's work. He's the only one who gets glory here. You're going to see this as a recurring theme through the the book, and an important one in this entire letter. Paul continually contrasts all these other things that we, we really do get tempted to run after in our world. Status influence, power, authority, wealth, whatever. He continually contrasts these things. Even the gifts of the Spirit, 
with the surpassing importance of loving God and loving others the right way, giving all the glory to Jesus. He would remind them of things like this in 1 Corinthians 8.1. He says, knowledge puffs us up, but it's love that builds the church. 1 Corinthians 4.20, he'd say, if you're tempted with your eloquent words, he would say, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And it's not to say that wisdom and knowledge are a bad thing, or eloquence is a bad thing. Paul commends them, genuinely commends them, because he sees the Spirit has increased them in wisdom, has increased them in the ability to relate the gospel to the people of their time. But he's saying, remember, man's wisdom cannot hold a candle to God's wisdom. And not only does getting lost in the pursuit of human wisdom and eloquence prevent the word from taking root in our hearts sometimes and bearing fruit like in Athens, it also can spoil the fruit that's come amongst us. When we turn aside, there's a lot of off-ramps on the road, that narrow road of following Jesus. A lot of things that even look like ways of following Jesus, we need to be committed to him alone. He refuses to let that happen to his dear friends in Corinth, his spiritual children. And right at the beginning of this letter, he says, let's make, this, let's make one thing clear. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. Time and time again, he lovingly pulls them back to the center. Center of it all, the true gospel of the one who loved us, died for us, and rose again, setting us free. Amen? Let's look again at the very second, well, the second verse here, right at the beginning, the intro, he says this, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth. Let's just pause right there. God's church in Corinth. You know, Paul wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament. And this is the only time he uses this kind of phrasing. He never uses this same title. He might say, I'm writing to God's holy people in Colossae. Or, I'm writing to the church in Thessalonica. But here, he says, I'm writing to God's church. Again, Dr. Gordon Fee says this, the church belongs to God, not to them, or to Paul, or to Apollos, and by his slight change in the address, Paul disallows at the outset one of their tendencies to think too highly of themselves. There's a lot going on in these first nine verses here. He's making a point. Let's get one thing clear, even before we get into it. This is God's church. There is one Lord here. There is one who will receive glory here. Amen? I mean, I think this speaks to our moment in Western Christianity as well. I think if we're honest, there's a similar drive in our culture and in our church cultures for status, to be seen as somebody who is in the know on everything, for glory of our own. I mean, look no further than the celebrity culture that we have and the rise of influencers as people we listen to on social media, right? This is inside the church, too, if we're honest. Not only with the rise of televangelists of the you know, 70s, celebrity pastors today, all too easily, we tend to rally around those whose teaching is popular or well-known. Perhaps there's a similar thing with us culturally as to what was going on in Corinth in that day, if we're honest with ourselves. And perhaps we need to listen to what Paul is saying to them in this moment. And look, I'm not trying to talk you out of listening to podcasts or moody radio, okay? Let's not panic. <laughs> and I don't think knowledge and wisdom are a bad thing. On the contrary, I pray that you would surround yourself with incredible biblical teaching daily. But let me first say two things. Number one, don't let 
anything come before your time in the actual word of God and in prayer. And number two, don't only gravitate toward what's popular or comfortable for you. You need to be okay with hearing things you don't like. You need to be okay with people who maybe even theologically have some difference and be able to listen with grace and do as Paul says and test that according to the word for yourself. You need to be able to do that. If we only are listening to teachings that already tell us what we already assume to be true, then we're basically following the patterns of our world and we're basically telling Jesus, I'm not signing up for change, so I don't want to be made a new creation. So we need to be open to it, but nothing, nothing, nothing in terms of what we take in, even from me, even from here, even in life groups, should come before our dedication to the word of God and prayer in the spirit. Amen? So we need to hear this. You know, much later in life, Paul would warn Timothy, he'd say things like this, in the last days, people will be less and less interested in sound doctrine and the real truth. Instead, they're just going to listen to whoever tells them what sounds good to them. Again, try telling me that the word of God doesn't speak to our moment, our post-truth moment, my truth moment, right? So like Paul, right here at the outset, I want to say to us, soak up all the teaching, all the, all the great teaching that is available to you. You have more of that, access to that, better worship music, better, soak it up. But never get confused about whose church it is that we belong to. Never get confused about what the foundation of our very lives is. There is one Lord. His name is Jesus. And from our house, he will be the one to get the glory. Amen? Because it is God's church. And that's a great thing. You know why? If you look at Paul in this moment, because he is so certain that it is God who began the work, that it is God's church. He is confident. Despite the reports he's been hearing of all the mess going on, and church gets messy. Read the New Testament. Despite all of that, he's confident, because it is God's church, that God will bring about the fruit. God will be the one who makes change happen. God will resurrect us and make us new creations. God will fulfill what he began in us. Amen? Like he said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, he that began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Look at the very end of this introduction, verse 8 and 9. He says, he, he, there's a change here. All of a sudden he starts speaking in future tense. Not talking about what God has done amongst them. He's talking about what God's going to do. He says, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son. He's going to do it. And that's good news for us today because we're not perfect either. We got a lot going on. None of us have arrived yet. Like, again, Paul writing to the Philippians says, I haven't obtained perfection yet. I'm still in process, and so are we. And we got things that God needs to speak to us about. We got areas of our lives that maybe we haven't even let God into yet, but we need to open those doors because he's faithful, and he cares. And he's not trying to ruin your fun. He's trying to make you holy. Amen? Paul is so confident that God will continue to shape them, rounding off 
areas of spiritual immaturity in them. And he's confident that that would be the case for us as well. Remember, spiritual maturity, it's not about how much you know, it's about how quickly you obey. We believe in him for the miracle he wants to do in us to make us new creations. And we will give him all the glory. If we'll truly submit our lives to Jesus as Lord, build our lives upon him as our only foundation, he's going to do a work in us that exceeds anything we could imagine. He's going to bring us peace that's not circumstantial, that doesn't blow in the wind with what's going on in our world or on our paycheck or whatever. He's going to bring us his joy. He's going to restore to us the joy of our salvation. How many of you guys wake up in the morning and go, thank God, right? We should be waking up every single morning like, yes, right? We need him to restore that work in us again. But it's going to be him that does it. It's not going to be because we're smarter than everybody else. (laughs) It's not going to be because we're influential. We need him to give us those gifts so that we can reach some for him. We need to be ready to move with him. I love what Craig Groeschel says. He says, any organization, as it develops, it moves naturally from a, a bias towards action to a bias towards talk and conversation. Look at what's happening in our world right now. We need to be ready to let the Lord move us into action again, not just talking a bunch. People don't need to hear more talking. They need to see more Jesus followers putting the skin of the Holy Spirit on and walking it out. Like, we need to be ready to move. But it doesn't happen because, you know, we're looking for our own glory or because of how smart we are. It's because the Holy Spirit wants to do something new in us people. He wants to do something new. So welcome to 1 Corinthians. It's going to be a fun ride. (laughs) We're going to pray in just a moment. But I want us to be real this morning. You know, the, the times we're living in are crazy. Our culture is a lot like what we're going to read about in this book. And when we live in crazy cultural moments, it's really easy for us to get overwhelmed by it all. It's really easy for our heads to spin. It's really easy for us to say, I don't even know where to turn to figure out what the right answer to this quandary is like. And sometimes we need a big dose of clarity when trying to follow Jesus faithfully in our culture, especially with all the misinformation out there. That's sort of what Corinth was experiencing. We got to go back to the source. Amen? So I want to invite us. Let's lay aside pursuit of anything else first. Let's lay aside all the pursuits that our world tells us are going to fulfill us. Let's come back to the source. God first, God only. Amen? Would you bow your head with me? We're going to pray. And even at the outset here this morning, you know, you, you might be here. And even as we're just starting to maybe just dip a toe in this, you, you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you and bringing conviction in your heart. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does in our lives is he wakes us up. He makes us aware. He calls us to repentance where there's things in our lives which don't line up with the word of God. Maybe you're here and you're already kind of feeling that a little bit. Maybe you've, you know, feel like you've been blending the ideas of the word with the ideas of the world. And you're hearing the Holy Spirit say, it's enough of that. Let's not play that game. That's not for you. Come follow me. Maybe you've fallen off the habit of seeking God in his word and in prayer first. 
You know, we have so many things that are available to us every day. So many other things that can take up our time and our energy and our focus. And maybe you're here today and you're just saying, I feel that. I feel that. And I need his help, but I want to put him first again. Would you just raise a hand if that's you today? Amen. Amen. Me too. <laughs> Let's go for it. Amen. Let's go for it today. Let's not hold anything back from the one who loved us enough to come ransom our souls. And let's let him define us again. We're all in process. None of us is perfect. But let's come back to Jesus again. Let's let him make us new. You might be here today and you're saying, you know what? I've never committed to him. I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never kind of made that conscious choice to say, I actually am going to build my life on you. I believe that you died and rose again for me. And I want you to teach me how to follow you like this. If that's you, would you raise your hand and put it right back down? We don't have anybody looking around right now, but if you want to say for the first time today, I'm making that commitment with all of my heart. Amen. Amen. I want to pray a simple prayer with you. And there's no, no magic power in these words. It's just simply a prayer of surrender of our lives to him. And if everyone would just repeat after me, if this is the first time you're praying this, today is an amazing day for you. Today is the day of salvation, the word says. And I promise you, God's going to show you some new things in your life. He's going to take you and make you a new creation, restore your joy in a new way. Just pray this after me. Just say, dear Jesus, I'm coming to you today. I've tried it my own way. And I'm leaving that behind. Today I repent of all my options, of all the ways I've sought glory for myself and turned to my own way. I'm going to trust you now. I believe you died for me and rose to new life to set me free. I give you my life. Come and make me new in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, we come to you today because we all need you. And every single one of us is a work in progress. But we thank you, Lord, that first and foremost, you are patient with us, that you love us enough, you bear with us. We thank you that you're patient, but we thank you, Lord, that you will not ever stop pursuing us. And you will never let us be okay with falling away from you. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can never sin again with happiness. (laughs) Ruining that for us, Lord. Thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that as we journey in this letter, that you would call us into new life with you. We pray you would help us to humbly bring our lives and our hearts to you and you alone today and always. And to simply rest in the fact that because we lean on you with everything, you're responsible then and your shoulders are broad enough for that burden you are faithful and true to complete the work in us that you began we thank you for that jesus today we dedicate our hearts wholeheartedly to you alone we thank you that you will do in our midst more than we could ask or imagine in jesus mighty name amen 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 hey thanks for joining us today we pray this message has been a blessing to you If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps others find this content. If you want to connect with us, head over to social media or go to wordofgracechurch.com.